Because as we press into David's relationship with his son, Absalom, it's super weird. There's a lot of ways where we want to pick on David and his lack of being a quality father. David has a lot of misses in his parenting. David is going to be an example for us as a biblical character of, of things not to do as a dad. He's not a man that we typically lift up and say, hey, here's a guy that you want to follow as a, as a father example. Because in his relationship with his children, there seems to be a lot of separation. There seems to be a lot of inaction. He may have emotion, but it doesn't seem like he has much action. I use that as a foundation in even discussing in this book because it's a fictional narrative of pulling out a specific idea in regards to David's heart, and this is what it is. David, as a man after God's own heart, David is a man that continually demonstrates for us that man or a woman who trusts the Lord regardless of what the circumstances look like. Yes, we have David drop that hand grenade in his lap and commit sin with adultery and with murder. And as we're sitting in this morning's text, again, we're watching the consequences of his sin in his life. But as we're watching these consequences, David has full faith and trust that God is who he says he is. He has full faith and trust in God in regards to God saying what the consequences were going to be in his life. And David walking out those consequences. David is demonstrating, God, I trust you. Even though there's a lot within me that may want to do something different, even though there's a lot who are counseling me on the outside to do something different, David's resolution is that he's going to trust in the Lord, and that's what we're going to see in this morning's text. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. I believe it's chapter 15. Chapter 15, and this is uh, for outline this morning. We're going to, again, focusing on Absalom and David. First half is really looking at Absalom's character. Second half is looking at David's character. And it's also an introduction to a lot of other characters that are going to continue in the narrative. So there's some foreshadowing going on, and that's how I'm going to get through this whole chapter. Quickly is by limiting my comment there. First half, we're going to be pretty heavy and slow. So chapter 15, verse 1 says, After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such, a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case, your words are good and right, straight. But there's no deputy, there's no listener of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, oh, that I were made judge in the land. And everyone who had any suit, any dispute or cause or decision would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put, put out his hands and take him and kiss him. 
In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass after 40, it says in my text, it's probably four. If it's 40, it's referring to Absalom's age is the idea. Or it's a scribal error because there's a few old er, historical manuscripts that have the number four, and that makes sense in its context. So after four years, after he's been in restoration of relationship with his dad, it says that Absalom comes to the king. Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies, where the the root of it means slander. He sent slanderers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from a city from Gilo, and he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Verse 13, now a member, messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So here's what's going on in Absalom's heart. And we've already addressed David's inaction towards Amnon and Absalom killing Amnon and then Absalom fleeing from judgment. He was in Geshur for three years before he gets brought back, that banished one being brought back into Israel. And as he's in Jerusalem, he's there for two years without any interaction, without having a face-to-face interaction with his dad, David. So that was the prior chapters. Now as you're sitting with him finally coming before his dad, we mentioned last week that he's not coming in repentance. There's not a true reconciliation, but there's some ironing of the wrinkles, so to say, for four years after Absalom's been lifted back into this position. And again, he is the crowned prince. He is the heir apparent to the nation. This is Absalom's behavior. So whatever you want to define his issues with his dad, they're deep, And they're deep to the point where he wants to dethrone his dad and step into his dad's throne. The description that we just read through the first part of this chapter, I mean, this is is a political manual to the T. If you want to try and create uh, dissatisfaction with the current leadership, and establish your own authority in contrast to the current leadership, this is a great playbook to follow. Because what does Absalom do? Absalom is the crown prince. Remember all of his hair? And yes, I have hair to flip. I can see it in heaven right now. You just picture him in this luxurious chariot, right? 
He's, he's a man's man. He's good looking. You can see he's tan. He's toned. You can see the cords of his forearm as he's holding on to the side of this chariot with his 50 men of his secret service contingent running before him. They're, his, they're proclaiming his presence to the people. They're demonstrating his power. They're there for his protection. But what he is doing is he's doing the handshake and kissing babies that politicians do. So he's coming to the way that's to the gates of the city. In history, the gate of the city, this is where the, uh, the civil uh, government decisions are going to be made. This is where the economic decisions are made. This is where the leadership of the community finds themselves. And if you have a dispute with a neighbor, a business deal, there's, you need some kind of mediator to solve an issue for you. This is where you went. So as individuals are coming into the city with a, a dispute, they need a decision made, they need a judgment, Absalom's placing himself in the gap before they even get to David's judges and before David himself as judge. And what he's doing is he's, he's showing empathy to the people. I hear you. Your case is good. Your words are good. What you were describing to me, this is, this is, you are right, you are just. If I were your judge, I would give you justice. As the people are looking to him as the crown prince and they're bowing in obeisance to him, what does he do? No, no, stand. And he gives them a hug. I'm just, a, I'm just like you. I'm a, I'm a common man. So this is how he's stealing their hearts. He is lifting himself up as the answer to whatever the government issues are, whether it's economic, whether it's in the military, whether it's in the civil government. Remember, these are tribes that, have, that God has kept together, but in, as tribes, they have a lot of infighting. They have their perspectives. They have their regions that they want to be successful and again, David is from the tribe of Judah. He has the support of Judah and Benjamin. The other 10 tribes, not so much. It's a lot more of a tenuous relationship. And Absalom is picking at all of those issues in the relationship and what he's doing. And this is what we watch in politics. This is what we, you can see this in ministry. You can see this in your workplace where somebody is trying to undermine the authority of another human being. And this is what Absalom is doing. And this is Absalom's heart. And the contrast between David and Absalom is David was sought out by the Lord, anointed by the Lord, called by the Lord, and appointed by the Lord, all in God's timing in his life. Absalom, in direct contrast to the character of David, Absalom is the heir apparent that if he just stays underneath dad's authority, more than likely he's going to be king in the right time. But rather than waiting for God to bring about those circumstances in his life, he's going to bring it about. He has a great deal of discontent with his dad. He has a great deal of discontent as he looks at his culture, things that he doesn't like. In some ways, he's being honest. In other ways, he's being totally dishonest just because he wants power. The people, there are people who love David and they support David. They think that he is a great king or if he's not a great king, he's a great man of God. He's a man that I'm willing to follow. David has close friends that are going to walk alongside of him even as his son is attacking. 
But Absalom's picking at the hearts and stealing the hearts of the individuals that would take issue with David. Does anybody want to take issue with David's leadership? Anybody? Am I the only one? Do you not want a godly character in authority, whether it's in your business, local government, federal government? I want somebody who loves the Lord. I want somebody who loves his singular wife. I want somebody who loves his kids. And in this case, if it's government, if, if it's a woman, I want, I want somebody, a man or a woman who is madly in love with the Lord and has the gifts and the talents and the ability and the tenacity to do the job that's required. That's, that's what I want in that position. In a lot of ways that we look at David's character, we can pick him apart today 3,000 years down the road. And this is what Absalom is doing. He's picking dad apart. He doesn't deserve that position. And again, he has his whole list of reasons. And this is how Absalom is stealing the hearts of the individuals. One of the major issues, and you see this in politics today, is the manipulation of your relationship with God. When somebody tells you that they love God, that they pray, God bless you, God bless America, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. What does that do for you? Does that elevate that person in your eyes? Right? It, of course it does. Because that if, if somebody is in love with Jesus, if somebody is raising their hand and says that Jesus is my Lord, he is my Savior, he is my King, he is my Master, he is my God, does that not break down a, a, a wall that you may have in that relationship? Absolutely. The thing is, is it's a playbook in politics. And that playbook in politics is people will pretend to have a relationship with God or have a very fleshly, worldly, political relationship with God and use that relationship to motivate the hearts of the people that they are seeking to lead. We see that happen, and every single, every single time a politician opens their mouth, we're in that balance. Is that a real relationship or is that a political relationship? Absalom does not have a relationship that we know about and that we can see with Yahweh. Absalom's relationship, it's a political relationship with God, and God is a tool for me to get what I want. So when he's saying to dad, dad, when I was in Geshur, after I killed Amnon and I was banished, I made a vow to God that if God brings me, if Yahweh brings me back to Jerusalem, then he will be my God. So he's using relig religious language to manipulate the heart of David. And David tells him to go in peace, right? Go ahead, go to Hebron, go in peace. Absalom's name, it's, it's a compound word. Absalom, Ab is father, Salam, Shalom, peace. When David says go in peace, to me, there, there is an undertone in that statement to, to Absalom coming from David. I have no doubt that David is completely aware of what Absalom has been doing as he's there in the community. He knows that Absalom is trying to undermine him. He knows the backdoor conversations that he's having. David has advisors. David has spies. He is not ignorant to this information. As he tells, his son comes to him and says, Dad, I want to go to Hebron. Hebron is the, it's a major city in Judah. 
It is where all of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives, this is the cave of Machpelah where they are all buried. There is a historical religious root to Yahweh there in that community. And Hebron is where David was first anointed king over the tribe of Judah. So when Absalom wants to go to Hebron, he's using that community and he's using religious language to get himself there to usurp authority from his dad. So when dad says, Absalom, go in peace, one, remember that your father is peace. And I'm telling you as your dad to go in peace. Absalom, are you listening to the words? Does Absalom go in peace? Does Absalom have peace in his heart and his mind? Does Absalom have peace in his behavior? Everything that he is doing is division. Everything that he is doing is a demonstration of hatred. Everything that he is doing is in direct disobedience to the will of God. God, honor your father and your mother is God's command. Is he honoring his father? Absolutely not. Is he honoring the Lord? Absolutely not. Using religious language to manipulate his own mind and emotion to manipulate his dad, to manipulate the, po uh, the population, gets him to the community that where he wants to be, to where they've sent out the spies and the slanders and the messengers into the different tribes, especially the northern ten tribes, where there's going to be a lot more discontent with David. All of this language is to get Absalom to this position with enough support for the coup. And when he gets to Hebron, what does Absalom do? He goes to church. He goes to a worship service. He's there offering sacrifices according to the religious culture of the day and what God had commanded. There he is with rebellion in his heart, standing before God and saying, God, the one who you appointed is not king. I am king. Do you see Absalom's heart? But do you also recognize and see how easy it was for him to manipulate the culture? Do you see how easy it is in our culture for our mindsets and our minds to be manipulated, for our whole hearts to be stolen away from what is true based upon a whole playbook that's been going on since the dawn of time politically? And Absalom is playing by that playbook, and we watch many in our culture play by the same playbook. So when the messengers come to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom, David's been watching this for an extended season. David knows. He knows that he knows that what Absalom is doing is at the hand of God in his life. God said that the sword would not depart from your household as a consequence to his sin. So as David is watching his son... There is part of David that we can pick on that we're not going to press into this morning in his inaction. We're going to focus on that side where David is simply trusting in the Lord. Before we read that perspective, turn quickly to Psalm 3. It's really short. But this is what David wrote in the midst of Absalom's treason. And when, Abs and when David is fleeing from Absalom. So this is Psalm 3. So again, in, in the narrative in 2 Samuel, we don't get any of David's conversation with God. Here we get his conversation. Psalm 3 says, Lord, well, its title says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, 
How they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. So not just his son, but all those who have listened to his son's voice, the enemy's voice, their own flesh. Verse 2, many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. The word help there, salvation, Yeshua. There is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, you're a shield for me. You're my glory. You're the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. I want you to have this in your mind, knowing that David is pressing into his relationship with his God the one who has caused him to be king, the one who has forgiven him of his sins. So as David is sitting in a circumstance where we could give David all kinds of counsel on what he ought to be doing, and I think we could give him very wise counsel and very biblical counsel. But ultimately, when we look at David, what are you doing? What David is doing is he's trusting his God. Ready? So watch David trust. So the messenger comes and says, the hearts, uh, this is back in 2 Samuel 15, 13, the hearts of men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster, literally bring evil upon us. And strike the city with the edge of the sword. Look at David's heart as king. Absalom is just taken. And rather than David protecting what has been given to him, what would David have to do to protect the city? He'd have to go to war. This would be civil war. David's heart in trusting the Lord, he's willing to avoid civil war. Civil war. If Absalom wants to take let God determine whether or not Absalom gets to take or whether the Lord will keep is David's perspective. So let us get out of Jerusalem as quickly as we can because if Absalom still shows up and we are here, people are going to die and these people are the children of God. Verse 15, the king's servants said to the king, we are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. Now this is pretty messed up. This is really foreign to our culture. The concubine relationship with David. Some of these women were probably Saul's concubines, potentially. A concubine in David's time and how these, these marriages, they're all political and economic relationships. So these women that he has chosen to leave behind, 
They're related to political and economic treaties with other, other governments. If David takes these women with him, he is he would potentially cause issues with the nations that there are treaties involved that are associated with these women. Does that make sense? Totally messed up. Not our culture today. It's the culture that he is living in. So I don't know how he chose the 10. Weird. But he chooses 10 to leave behind, and that's also foreshadowing a judgment from God earlier on. That uh, Anyways, totally messed up. You ready? Sorry for the Mother's Day message here. All right. <laughs> Verse 17. This is why we need middle school, because the middle schoolers are, what is he talking about? 17. The king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all the servants passed before him by his hand. And all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed David from Gath, passed before the king. These are the men that gathered to David when he was fleeing from Saul. These are his mercenaries, his private guard. These are men who love David and who are loyal to him, who know his heart through the good and the bad. Verse 19, then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Ittai is one of his mighty men. You can read through that list in chapter 23. He says to Ittai, why are you going with us? Return and remain with the king. Check that out. David calls Absalom the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you only came yesterday. You've only been here a little bit. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I go, since I, go I know not where? Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, Surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. Is that a good friend? David had some great men around him. So David said to Ittai, go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittites and all his men and all the little ones who were, who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. Then the king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. So again, Jerusalem, the city of David, as they are leaving, they are heading towards the east. To come out of the city, you have to pass over this brook Kidron, and then you go up the ascent of the Mount of Olives before they go down the backside through Jericho, over the Jordan, up to Manahim. Man, man, yeah, that word is where they go. Mahatme, yeah, uh-huh. Verse 24, you ever get tongue-tied? All these words in the Old Testament must be a different language. All right, there was Zadok also and all the Levites with him. Here in the Ark of the Co uh, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. Listen to this. This is, this is awesome. You should have this underlined in your Bible, and this is the expression of what David is doing. If, if I find favor, if I find grace, in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it, being the ark, and his dwelling place. Remember all the emphasis of that earlier on in David's life. But 
If he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Is that a statement of faith? What's going on in David's life? His family has exploded. Son that he loves and wants to be successful and cares about and is concerned about, not just as a parent, but wants him to be successful in his relationship and with life and God and in the culture. David is sitting in all of the consequences of his own guilt, right? How much of that emotion is going on? Yes, forgiven, but understanding that the circumstances are because of him. Walking alongside and seeing what his son is doing. Sitting in the rejection of the culture. Anybody like being rejected by people? It hurts. David is sitting in all of these emotions. And his faith and trust in God is God... I want you, I want you to do to me and in my life whatever is good for you. That is a statement of bold faith. Because most of us would be going, oh God, oh God, oh God, please help, help, help. Right? Then the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes uh, from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carry the ark of God back to Jerusalem and remain there. So, David's trust in the Lord, and two, now he's got the two high priests, Zadok and Abiathar, that are going to be able to be his spies to be able to send word to him what is going on. Multi-purpose there, verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives. Look at all this. He's weeping as he goes up. His head is covered. He's barefoot. All the people who were with him covered their heads, went up, weeping as they went. I really, I don't get the sense that this is, oh, woe is me kind of attitude. I really think that this is weeping for the whole culture. This is weeping for the kingdom of God. There is a major division and disunity going on. The image of God is being broken to the whole community. They are not together in worship. There is broken fellowship. There is a great deal of mourning as this event is transpiring. And, of course, there is fear for their own physical safety and all of the implications. Verse 31, then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh, Lord, I pray. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Our understanding is that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandpa. So as David committed adultery with Bathsheba, Ahithophel has a personal issue with David. Even in this position as counselor, Ahithophel is all for removing David as king. But he's a wise man, and David's concerned about his counsel to Absalom and is asking God to turn that counsel into foolishness. And God answers this prayer pretty quick. It says, Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain, 
where he worshipped God, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, with you there? Therefore, it will be that whenever you hear from, whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, another one of David's friends, went into the city, and Absalom came in to Jerusalem. A lot of that in there, like I said, that's going to play into the immediate context, so we'll save comment for all of those different relationships. Worship team, come on up. But what I want us to do as the worship team comes up, I want us to back into that prayer of let him do to me as it seems good to him. And this is the connection for me. In John chapter 18, this is the end of the Passover meal that Jesus is sharing with the disciples. And in that Passover meal, he's given them the instructions in regards to communion, that as often as we gather together, that we are to remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. As Jesus, as that evening ended, and they leave the house where the Passover meal was performed, they had to cross over the same brook Kidron that David is passing over. As Jesus would have passed over the brook Kidron, it would have been running red with blood from the Temple Mount. Because all of the Passover lambs that were being slain on the Temple Mount in this annual feast that they were commanded to celebrate, it's all an image of Jesus Christ as our sacrificial lamb. So here is our king leaving his city with the attitude as he crosses over the brook Kidron, he goes into a garden that's on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. The same ascent that David is climbing up as he is weeping, as he is mourning in regards to the circumstances and the brokenness of Jerusalem. Saying that, Lord, if I find favor in your sight, you will bring me back to the city that you dwell in. Do you hear David's heart? And do you see the picture of Christ? When Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, we are told that he brings Peter, James, and John with him to pray. Boys, pray with me. And Jesus separates himself and goes and prays to his Father. And what is Jesus' prayer in that moment? It's going to be similar to David's prayer. I take this cup away from me. I want this, but if you want this, I submit myself to you. So even as you go back into this scene in 2 Samuel, David is imaging for us the heart of Christ. Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. This is an event that you need to bring about in my life for Jesus. This is the event that brings about his death as our sins are being laid on him where he becomes the savior of humanity by all of our sins being poured out on him and him shedding his blood for our sins. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are now free and we have his life. 
Did Jesus want the will of God? Yes or no? Yeah. Does anybody live in some hard circumstances? Long days, difficult life. Maybe you need to step into that position and you need to remember the body and blood of Christ. And Lord, I need to trust you as David trusted you. I need to trust you as your son trusted you. Some of you, you need to have that moment with the Lord of I have sinned and confess and you need to trust that he is right and that he is just and that he will forgive you from all of your unrighteousness. This is the moment that we have as often as we gather together as the body of Christ. He is our help from God. He is our savior. He is our hope. He is the one that walks with us in the midst of those extremely difficult circumstances and all he's asking us to do The simple question that he has for you and me is, will you trust me? I'm going to trust him. Are you going to trust him? Without faith in David, whatever the results are, Lord, whatever your desire is, whatever it is you want to do, here am I.